Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is Julianne Moore. She's been nominated for an Academy Award four times for Boogie Nights, The End of the Affair, Far From Heaven, and The Hours. David Cronenberg, who directed her recently in Maps to the Stars, said Moore is 100% her sweet, approachable self up until the moment the camera starts rolling. Then she becomes, quote, this character that you wouldn't want to spend any time with, unquote. I have the flu. I need cigarettes. American spirit and... I need you to pick up some prescriptions. Ambien, Vicodin, Xanax, Zoloft. Moore plays troubled women with a complicated mix of fierceness and vulnerability. I've had the pleasure of working with her on two different projects. Recently, in Still Alice, Moore plays a linguistics professor diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I have good days, bad days, and... On my good days, I can, you know, almost pass for a normal person. On 30 Rock, Moore was my character's high school crush, Boston native Nancy Donovan. I'll give you two words. Ten. Four. Final offer. I'll wait. Not forever. I'll try. Wicked hard. Julianne Moore's resume is an actor's wish list, with films in every genre, horror, suspense, romance, and comedy. Her acting range more than demonstrates that she's comfortable with change. That flexibility springs in part from her childhood. You'd be somewhere a year, maybe two, sometimes three. But Germany, we were in Panama, we were in Alabama, and How'd Georgia, that work for you Texas. when you look back on it now? You know... 
It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Not so good. But not so bad either. You know, I mean, you can't. At least your father had a job. Exactly. (laughs) It's looking on the bright side. But it's true. Yeah, you know, so we're all kind of a collection of our experiences. And in in a sense, it really gave me a sense. I had an understanding of where I wanted to be. Did it fuel you in terms of what you do for a living? I think so. That you I were think never there long enough to connect to people? Or did you get into some kind of... I didn't get into any trouble. I was ve- I'm was. i a very good girl, yes. Alec. I'm a very good girl. I, I sense that. Yeah. You only play bad people in <laughs> movies. Right, but in real life... That's I'm, how you get it out. Yeah. In your real life, you're very I'm sweet. I'm a very good girl. But no, I think, it may, I think it's pretty common that actors come from an itinerant background. You know, preacher's kids and IBM kids and military kids and... Um, for some reason, I think it, it teaches you that behavior is mutable, that behavior is not character. And once you figure that out, you're like, well, that means that I can behave any way I want, that people are choosing to behave certain ways, that speech is a choice and movement is a choice and you know, accents are all choices. So it's an interesting thing to understand, I think, at a very young age. I lived in the same town my entire life. Why are you an was... actor then? That's interesting. It just had to do with having to entertain yourself. I grew up in an era where there was no iPads and there was no HBO and there was no uh, storytelling. And no one would let you watch television? We, we had a television, <laughs> but it was uh, when I grew up, it was the age of like Fantasy Island and Love Boat. I like those shows. They were okay. But my point being is that uh, that idea of storytelling, playing voices, dialects, watching movies and remembering every line in the movie and acting out the movies, that kind of thing, that was really a big part of my childhood. That's interesting. But we did not. We, I lived in the same town my whole life. Well, you know, it's interesting what you say about narrative, because that's what it is for me, too. I was a big reader, you know, and that's what I did from a really early age. I was that kid who won the library contest every summer. You know, how many books can you read? The librarian would say to me, you know, you can't take out 12 books at a time. <laughs> and, and they say, say to you. And I was like, why not? Why not? I'll read them. I, I probably, you know, and so I would do, I just read and read and read and read. And so it was that sense of narrative. Did you know then you were going to end up doing what you're doing? No, I thought I'd be a librarian. You did? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I thought— When did that start to change? You know, I thought I would be a a doctor or a lawyer. I thought I would go to graduate school because my parents wanted that for us. Um, I started doing plays after school in the sixth grade because I couldn't do anything else. I tried out for drill team. I didn't make it. I didn't ever make cheerleading. I couldn't do any sports. You were too good. Well, I just wasn't athletic. All the slutty girls were cheerleaders. You're too good. (laughs) And I couldn't dance. I couldn't do any of that stuff. So I went out for the play, and I I got parts in the plays, and I was like, oh, oh this is fun, you know, and I, and that was my after-school thing. And then I had a teacher when we moved to Germany, someone named Roby Taylor, who said, you know, you can do this for a living. And I was like, oh, well, I didn't know anybody who did. I'd never been to a play except for high school plays or community theater. The people in the movies and on TV didn't seem real. So she handed me a copy of Dramatics magazine and said, you can choose a school. And I came home to my parents, you know, I was 17 and said, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> 17. 17, yeah. Who'd you tell? My mom and my dad at dinner. And my brother and my sister were there, too. And my mother said, oh, Julie. Did oh, everybody no. in the family look at you like that? It was like, oh, there's Julie. Oh, yeah. Julie. Like, oh, no. Well, my sister was so supportive. She She's a year and three days younger than I am. And she... What does she do? She's a lawyer, but she actually works in real estate. And your brother? My brother is in advertising. Yeah, he's a writer. He's a novelist, and he works in advertising. But, you know, my sister used to help me with all my lines and stuff. She'd run lines with me, and so she kind of always knew, I think, that it was a possibility. Were one of your parents more supportive than the other? They were equally aghast. <laughs> and, and, and yet equally supportive right. because we lived There was in, an aghast phase. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and then they were like, Then when you well, win a couple Golden yeah. Globes... Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're living in Germany, and I filled out all these applications. This, these are the days, too, when you filled out your own college ac- application. So I applied to With Carne- a pen. Yeah. Carnegie Mellon, Boston University, 
And by accident, the graduate program at NYU, because I didn't read the paper, I guess. So my mother and I flew to New York City where I auditioned for those schools. And when I went to the NYU one, they were like, how old are you? And I was 18. And they said, um, you know, this is a graduate program. We don't accept people <laughs> out of high school. Yeah. Yeah, so, nice try. So nice try. And then so I, you know, I just for the other two schools and got into both of them and chose Boston because I wanted to go to Boston rather than. Had you lived there before? No. So you don't have roots in, in anyway, Boston. No. Mm-mm. Even though people think you people do. People think I do, yeah. They do. Yeah, because I, I think worked at the Up and Up Lounge in Kenmore Square. Yeah, that's where you worked when you went to school. Yeah. You went to BU. I did. Four years. For four, four t- solid years, yeah. That was the program. It was good. You know, it was an undergraduate theater program. Um, when you were done with it, did you feel that you that it helped you, that you needed yeah. Or could you have bypassed those four years you know, and still ended up where you are? That's a very interesting question because I was, for some reason, thinking about a friend of mine who didn't go to drama school in the car on the way here. And I wonder what it was like for her because she you know, hasn't seemed to need it. And there are a lot of things that I did in drama school that I think I didn't need either. But then in retrospect, I'm like, you know, it's helpful. Did you go to drama school? Mm-hmm. Where'd you go? NYU. Oh, okay. Did you go straight on to search for tomorrow then? The doctors. The I doctors. can't believe you just said that. I can't believe. Why? I, because I have in front of me. I wasn't going to go there right off. Oh, but, but now you're that you gonna... open that window, you were Fanny and Sabrina that's, Hughes. That's right. Franny, not Fanny. Franny and Sabrina. Someone else was Fanny Hughes. You were Franny <laughs> I Hughes. Was Franny yeah, Hughes. exactly. I know. I mean, couldn't it have been Francie? Yeah. Or Francis, Laura Dern was Fanny Hughes. She was. <laughs> you were fa- you were Franny and Sabrina Hughes mm-hmm. on World Turns. Mm-hmm. And before that, you did Edge. I did Edge. Were you on Edge? See, if you're on soaps, only when you're on a soap can you say Edge, edge search, search, yeah, World yeah. Turns, yeah, Days, mm-hmm. Days. That's so funny because I was on Edge when they were on East 49th Street in that really, really tiny studio. Remember? <laughs> now Rachel Ray shoots there, yeah. and really tiny. Soaps are gone. I know they're gone. They're gone. Soaps are gone. This is a couple of this four soaps left. And I work with people. The guy that played my dad. Um, Don Hastings was this, he was from the he started that show, he started Don on that show two months before I was born. So he had been on that show my entire lifetime oh when I got God. on, and he when the show was gone, he was still on it too. He was the most wonderful guy, so funny. But do you feel oh. in some ways? I mean, in some ways, I don't want to exaggerate, but yeah. wasn't doing a soap like some of the most honest work you've ever done in your Absolutely, life? Absolutely, because you have nothing to help you. There's no thrills. There's no no no. no there's no, no dialogue. Frills. I mean, you, the, right. the, the dialogue is so rough, so basic. All you're doing is is establishing story. I used to do what they called emotion. I called it anyway, emotional apple. Okay, where if I had to say something that was really just plot oriented, I try to like cry on top of it or laugh on top of it or anything just to make it mean something. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah, because it's all exposition. Well, I read somewhere where you said that doing the soap gave you experience mm-hmm. and confidence. Absolutely. Or discipline. discipline. It was discipline and confidence. Well, because you, and I loved that. Yeah, because no one, no one has time to help you. You know, the directors are working really fast. The writers are working fast. The other actors are working really quickly. You're just on your own. I remember Marissa Tomei, she played my best friend, Marcy. She said, <laughs> we, got into the, we, we got into the elevator, and she looked at me, and she goes, remember, L is for lunch because that was where the lobby was and so in that cafeteria and that was like the best piece of advice because I was like on my own remember hell is for lunch and then we did a scene together and it went by so quickly you know we did one one and a half takes or something and she goes you feel terrible don't you I said "Uh uh-huh she goes it happens all the time You'll get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to walk out here feeling crappy. <laughs> Two out of five days of the week. That's right. 
I just remember when I did that show, you had to show up on time. Yeah. You had to know your dialogue. Yeah. And, and no matter how excruciating it was, if you didn't, they fired you. You had to be there at 7 o'clock in the morning. You'd rehearse. You were on camera. I would have sometimes 30 pages of dialogue a day for three. It was like, you know, for three years. So it was like a boom, 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 boom. And then you finish maybe seven thirty, eight, nine. if you go late. You know, it was crazy. How long did you do the soap for? It was World a, Turns was your contract. It was my longer. contract. And it was a three-year contract. You did it for three years. CBS, they gave, they would do three years. The ABC once would do two years and stuff, but they they never gave me an option. Although they had the option to fire me at any time. Right. <laughs> it's their it option. Yeah. yeah, it was their option. And when you finished, yeah. what did you do? I went to the Guthrie Theater, actually, and I did Hamlet. With? Hamlet. Um, Jelko Ivanik. I saw you. You did not. I saw you. No, come on. Do you want to know something? Yeah. I, I can tell you right now. I did Loot with him on Broadway in 1986. Jelko. You did it with Jelko. Yeah. You did the show the following year in 87 or 88. It was 87 or 88. 87. I flew to yeah. Minneapolis to see Jelko. Holy cow. I saw you do... I saw you do Hamlet at the at the Guthrie. Well, I wasn't a Hamlet. I was a Philia. Yeah, you are. Exactly. Hamlet. I saw you. What did you think? I thought it was fantastic. You I don't, you don't remember Ivonic, me, do you? Do you, you want to know something? I do. And Jelko Ivanic, you were very young. You were a child. Yes. Yeah, and uh, Jelko Ivanic, he was probably one of the best Hamlets I've ever seen. Because mm-hmm. he didn't have to push. No. He seems like a very dark, kind of conflicted person. And he person. also seemed like a very young man, you yeah. know? I think that was interesting. About, both Jelko and I were very, were very small, very slender and tiny. And we looked like teenagers, kind of, you know? So Who directed? Garland Wright, who I adored. He passed away. But boy, I loved Garland. He was great. It was a really interesting production. I love Jelko. Jelko was There's great. a thing that people strain for when they play Hamlet that he has in yeah. that I really, really loved. Mm-hmm. So you did the Guthrie, and then, and I went to the I went to Actors Theater of Louisville and did some plays there, an Arthur Coppett play, and and then. So there wasn't an idea that you want to kind of strap yourself into the rocket sled here and get going, L.A. TV movies. No, no. I mean, I just did. I also worked. I worked at the Public. I did some plays, and then I met Andre Gregory, and I did Vanya. And all along, though, I was I was auditioning for stuff, and I got TV movies and things. And but it wasn't until I was twenty nine. That I got my first movie, which was an HBO movie called Cast a Deadly Spell. And then I did Hand That Rocks a Cradle. Mm-hmm. And then I did Shortcuts. And then I did Safe. And then, and then my movie career didn't really start happening until I was 29, 30. So for, for, it was just theater. Would you say Shortcuts was the biggest break you had at that time? Well, I, what happened was I did Shortcuts, Banyan 42nd Street, and Safe. So it was kind of the beginning of the independent theater movement, if you, if you will. And they all came out within the same year. And I went from being an actress who had no profile at all in film, none, because I couldn't, I couldn't get arrested doing movies. I mean, I would never get cast. Um, to Do suddenly, you know why? I don't know. You know, honestly, I would just didn't get him. I didn't get him. And in the 80s, I can remember, I mean, I auditioned for a ton of things. I remember auditioning for lots of Merchant Ivory movies. I always wanted to get one of those because those were such a big deal. I would audition for big comedies. I just <laughs> didn't get them. And I, and I was like, mm, you know. I remember the same thing. You'd be sitting there going, man, I want to get me one of them John Sayles movies. That's why. Oh, I, would, I need to be in one of those movies. I auditioned for him constantly. Yeah. I never, never got them. I actually got really close to a few things, but I never got anything. Where I did really well was in television. I kept, like, booking TV things. But, you know, they would put you on hold, and then they'd, you'd do pilots for them. And yes. my, that's the other thing, too. My pilots— Holding deals. They would, wouldn't get picked up. Whenever anybody says, how do you plan your career, you know, I mean, you laugh because we don't have any control. There's but the no thing to think about anything. it is you seem like somebody who's had a plan. No, uh-uh. Once you started making films, were the things you just didn't do anymore? Did you try to say, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket? 
No, most of the time we just do with what you're offered. You know, the best of what you're offered. You do the best of what's your what you're offered. You know, I, I think after I was on the soap. I did, you know, I didn't spend a lot of money. I kept my money in the bank. So then I spent some time doing theater because I really felt like I wanted to do that. You, know, you took good really, care of yourself. Yeah, I wanted to do way. that kind of stuff. And then I would do some TV movies and try to get, you know, and then the holding deals too, that you make money doing that. But in so, between shortcuts yeah. and playing Sarah Palin, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of TV in between there. Once you start making no. movies big time, you're making movies. Yes, that's true. You don't go back to TV very much at all. No, no. Because also it's kind of, ch- it changed, you know, because there was a period too Bingo. where, because now now it's sort of, they call you know, now it's the golden age of television. Now they're... There is such kind of um, interesting quality stuff on television, you know, great writing, great acting, and you know, so I think things did change. But there was a period when TV was very basic network stuff was not terribly interesting. What was it like when you met Altman? Oh man, he came to see Vanya. You know, we were doing Uncle Vanya, and he sat there, and I couldn't believe he was there. I don't even know if I said anything to him that day because he was he's the reason that I feel like I'm a film actor because when I went to school in Boston there were all those revival houses do you remember revival houses sure this is like hey, grandpa sure. grandma say yes. you remember that yeah, I remember Cinema I remember Village is around 13th exactly. Street take your walk where would you go? go I went to the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square Harvard Square so the Brattle was a revival house and used to have all these different weird double bills and stuff and I saw um, three women Altman's Three Women. And somehow I made it through the 70s without seeing Nashville or, or Brewster McCloud or McCabe, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Miller or any of those movies. So I'm Mash. watching MASH. So I'm watching this movie and I was like, who's this? Who made this movie? This movie's incredible. And it was the first time as a young person that I noticed a directorial hand, you know, where I was like, this is a specific kind of storytelling and it's eliciting a specific kind of acting. I kind of walked out of there and I thought, I want to do that. And, of course, it wasn't in the realm of possibility for me the first 10 years of my career. He came and saw Vanya? So he saw Vanya, and then he met me on The Player, which I desperately wanted. I remember sitting there talking to him. He said, I'm not going to give this to you. (laughs) I was like, okay. And that was it, and I was devastated. And then I got this phone call out of the blue for shortcuts. Hi, it's Bob Altman. Do you remember me? You know who I am? And I, was, I thought it was somebody playing a trick on me. I really did. I didn't think it was possible that he, you know, that's when we had hard lines too. you know, right. pick up your phone. And he said, I have this movie that I want you to do. And I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he goes, no, I want you to read it first. And then you can tell me if you want to do it, you know. But it was really, I mean, really, really a dream come true to, to work with him. What an amazing man. Did you make a movie with him? No. You know, from what I could see, he was someone who, listen, uh, it's no secret, I think, when you're in the business, or out of it, but especially when you're in the business, that casting and effective casting is 60% or more of a director's job. They want to just bring people to the party who know how to hit the ball. And he was someone who, I'll never forget someone said to me, they were all gathered there in this air sets rehearsal. Some of them were able to attend and some weren't. And Bob just turned to everybody and said, uh, Anuka May was in it uh-huh. and Mastroianni and yeah. Sophia Loren. And, nice. and, he, and then he would look at them and he was like, now, Anuk, you just go ahead and speak French. You speak French if uh-huh. you want to or English or Italian. Uh, Marcello, say whatever you want to say. Y'all just say anything you want to say and speak in whatever language you want to speak right. in. And I'll fix it in the edit. I'm yeah. going to subtitle it or whatever. He seems so 
uncontrolling. He he was. The thing about Bob was that you couldn't do anything wrong. So it made you feel like you could do anything and you would do anything for him. You'd be like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? And he's like, whatever you want to do. But it wasn't like it was chaos. You know, he set up. It was like there was a corral that all the actors were in and it was his corral. And some, even with an improv, he'd say, OK, you know, improv this. He said, now let's do it again. But this time you just say that part. So he was in complete control of it, but he really made you feel so free and so loved. Non-judgmental. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote I read about you where someone says, they, they cast you in shortcuts and you were a total unknown. That's right. She's a total unknown, they said, I was casting <laughs> in this role of shortcuts. I thought, and by then you've been working for almost 10 years in the business. 10 years. However, within that cast, I was the only person, and there were, what, 30 people in it, who wasn't famous. So, but isn't it amazing how in the movie business you are unknown. unknown if you haven't done a movie? I know. That, that any of us have seen. Exactly. What changed after you did that film? Did you change? Personally, did I change? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm ugly changed. and I have no talent. That's right. And now I'm beautiful. Did you start to get, did you start to get cured and then of I that? Got, and, then I was, and then I became, yeah, talented. I'm gorgeous and, and I know everything. <laughs> well, you know what was interesting? And I think this is, and it's actually very similar to what I felt growing up as a kid. You would be in one situation, you'd be at a school and maybe you would be a kid who wasn't very popular and no one thought you were, you know, very interesting or something. And then you'd move to another school. At that school, everybody would think you were interesting for some reason. It would just happen. And you'd think like, well, I was the same person. Person, I haven't changed that much. So but it's the perception just of you has changed. The perception has changed. And now the perception of you has changed after all. Of them. So and that, well, and so that's what happened to me too. So after ten years of doing television and theater, although people don't see the theater, so they don't think you really exist. They see TV. People thought, oh, she's a TV actress. And then I do work with Andre Gregory and Louis Maul, and I work with you know Robert Altman, and I work with Todd Haynes. And suddenly, I'm a huge film discovery. I'm in this amazing. Everyone you know, wants you. Yeah, and then I'm like, I'm the same. <laughs> the right. same thing. So I think oddly, what happens is that you don't change a perception of yourself. You're like, well, clearly, it's just yeah, other people's perception. It solidified my own work ethic. It, that it doesn't matter where I'm working. Did you feel that be, the way you grew up fed this in mm-hmm. terms of you being, because you had to reinvent yourself? Yeah, well, and also, you were you were seen by a fresh set of eyes yeah. again and again and again? You, you, just, you have to discover a core self and a core, a core sense of values, and people kind of poo-poo and say, like, oh, TV, uh, or oh, this or that. And I'm like, you know, nuh-uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. It's all valuable, all of it. You know, yeah. Even so when I do just, radio announcing, it's important. I do, I'm like, it's, that's work right. is work. It work is work. I owe them my best. And, and it's also it's it's valuable for you to do your best, no matter where you are, too. I really, really believe that. You know, in everything you do, and I also resent it when people say that they can't do something, like they can't. They were terrible waitress, and I'm like, why? Because you weren't paying attention. You're supposed to write down what I yeah. said. So it's it's important no matter what you're doing to put effort into it, I think. Did you have a good representation during that time? I did. Well, it's interesting. I, I've been with the same agent now and the same manager for 20 years. My first 10 years, I did change representatives a few times before I landed where I landed. My first agent was it was terrible. It was, this, it was an agency called Heseltine Baker. Do you remember I, them? I, Stark Heseltine. So they... Got me out of school. So they they pu- pulled me out of school. It was a big deal to have an agent, and I had no auditions at all. Nothing, absolutely nothing. It was a big deal then to have an agent. Yeah, no one called my answering service. No auditions, and then I got a phone call. Um, Bob, isn't it Bob Heseltine? And what was it? Who was the guy? Anyway, I remember the guys. 
But one of the big guys called me and said he had something really, really important and a great opportunity for me. And I got so excited. And he said it was for a friend of his. They needed a girl to fit in a costume to ride on a float in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Do you remember what the costume was? I don't. Maybe it was a turkey. Um, <laughs> a super hot <laughs> turkey. A, a red-headed hot, turkey. A red-headed turkey. And that's when I was like, this is ridiculous. Thank you very much. I'm leaving. What advice does an agent give you? Oh, people, they don't give you any advice. They don't. I don't think They're so. more like air traffic controllers. I they make so. deals. Well, here's the interesting thing that I think about acting, and I hear this from I hear this with young actors and stuff too. And or when people would say in the press, they say, "I didn't choose that. You know, my agent chose that for me, or my agent said I should do it, or so and so made me do it." And I'm like, "That's baloney." Isn't it? No interesting, one makes you do anything. Isn't it interesting when you run into? Mm-hmm. That type of person who's yeah. heavily, heavily coached by agents and publicists, right. which is such an, a foreign thing to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is your life, you know, and it's and you make the decisions and you control, you know, you control. You're totally your self-determining in and terms of the material to, you've done. You ha- yeah. Were you ever talked I, into doing a movie? I, I've talked myself into doing things for money, you I've, know. But that's but then but then I have but I take responsibility for it. I don't think there's anything where somebody said you really should do this piece where I did it unless I felt like there was an economic imperative. But mostly, Julianne avoids the money trap. She works instead with some of the best in the business. Coming up, she'll discuss her collaborations with David Cronenberg and Gus Van Zandt. Next time on Here's the Thing, I talk with tennis legend John McEnroe. His idea to improve the game will not surprise you. If you really want to make the game more popular to me, no umpires on the court, no linesmen. You don't need linesmen. They've already proven they can't see anything over the course of the last 50 years. John McEnroe talks tennis, family, and his love of music next time on Here's the Thing. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin. My guest today is Julianne Moore. I have always assumed that Moore picked her projects carefully and that she turned down mediocre films that offered huge payouts. To be honest with you, I mean, I would like to say that I did, but I I didn't have a whole... Like huge leading lady. Hit when people movie, hired you, what were they hiring you for? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of things that I've done were smaller budgeted things. I think some the of the budget bigger... aside, what did they expect from you acting wise? Uh, I have an idea, but you tell me. Really? Yep. I don't know. Well, you know, in the '90s, in particular, when there were a lot of people who were working, who were who were writer directors, and they were kind of, it was sort of a really great great period for independent film. I think people were looking to tell these really unusual stories. And there wasn't an economic expectation on them either. That's changed. So it was about being involved in that narrative and that in that vision and and stuff. You know, it really was bringing that story to life, I think. But yeah, I mean, in the commercial films that I've done, I've done I've done a few. Jurassic? Yeah. And I had I've had great directors like Steven Spielberg and Ridley Scott. Spielberg only did the first sequel. Yeah, he, he did, did the first, first one yeah. and the sequel. Then and the, he was and out. then he was out of it. Just the opportunity to work with him that was amazing. But um, did that take forever? It took six months, yeah. I guess. Yeah, you know, yeah. I did a movie called Nine Months that also took six months back in those <laughs> days. You know, but I don't think I ever took off as a commercial movie but you star. Could've. Really? What? Yeah. What do you think? Mm. You did Jurassic? I don't know. I don't know that I could have. I mean, I... Or did you send signals to the business that you were not in that game? (laughs) People do that. Well, honestly, I don't think so. I don't think that I did. Mm -hmm. I think I was, you know, I think I kind of was like, I'll play ball. But I don't know that any of those movies were hits. You know, I was in Hannibal. That wasn't a huge hit. I don't know. You know, I really, I really don't know. But I do know that I really like what I do. You know, I like... You made every kind of movie. I've made every kind of movie. You've made every yeah. kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. You've done movies with Steven Spielberg and uh-huh. Dinosaurs. That's right. You've done sequels where Anthony Hopkins chops his own hand off because uh-huh. he's so in love with you. Right. I've done um, independent drama. P.T. Anderson movies. P.T. Anderson, yeah. Scary movies. Black and white movies. Have I done Did you do a black and white movie? I don't know what I have. 
They didn't remake Psycho in black and white. They did it in color. They did it in color, yeah. Okay. But that was a remake. That was a shot-by-shot remake. No, that I know. You know, so it— which, you, which in an interview I read, you thought that was something you should not have done. I think it failed. I don't think that I shouldn't have done it, but I do think that the— When um, you're doing the film that is a shot-by-shot—I shot, mean, I just yeah. find this fascinating psychologically. When you do a film—I mean, I'm not just saying this for your benefit. You are a very, 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 very talented woman. Aww. And Van Zandt is a good director. He I think he's a very good director, director, yeah. What does Van Zandt, when he's remaking Shot by Shot, one of the greatest thrillers in history, right. did Van Zandt have to say anything to bolster you to get through that experience? Was he like mm-hmm. trying to... No, and it wasn't like it wasn't like we had to be bolstered to get through it. I think we were all very specifically trying to match, recreate. recreate it. But in a mo- And now I wish, if, our, if we were to do it again, I would like to do it in black and white. I'd like to do it in the same costume. I'd like to do it with the exact same let's intonation. Do yeah, let's, let's, do a, <laughs> let's do the better remake of Psycho like Shop that, for that, to me, I think that would have been... Instead, we sort of modernized it, but then kept the old pacing. Anne it was Yeah, she who's you. great. Who was so, Norman? Oh, 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 um, um, Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. How was Vince Zandt as a director? He was great. He's such a lovely person, very, very soft-spoken, you know, just incredibly, incredibly soft-spoken. I liked him a lot. I'd like to work with him on something that he, that you know. That I loved Elephant. Own. Elephant, I always tell people see Elephant, I which is his Columbine film. <gasps> oh, my I God, what, a, what an amazing film. It's yeah. an amazing film. It's like the most uh, hypnotic mm-hmm. film that, that has a Columbine type of right. uh, theme to it. And I, I, I love Gus. I think Gus is incredible. I think my favorite kind of acting to do, though, I saw Todd Haynes, my friend Todd Haynes, who I made Far From Heaven and Safe with, and we had dinner together, and we were talking about our experience. And he said, why did you understand? And how did you understand how minimal the acting was going to be? And I said, I felt like I saw it in the language. His language was so spare and so specific. And then I would say, let me see the frame. And his frames were also, I I felt like he was communicating so much just in the frame. So my favorite thing as an actor is to know what the director's vision is, to have communicated that way through the language and in the shot. And then I'm like, now I know what I'm doing. Give me an example. Well, like when Todd... Todd had a shot of a very wide living room, you know, at a baby shower, and there were a bunch of women all the way at the right side of the frame. I had crossed all the way across and was standing up on the left side of frame, and I just asked where the ladies' room, and my only line is, can you tell me where the ladies' room is, please, or something like that? And I could see it was all about this movement of her kind of trying to reach over these people. So, so once I looked at that, I was like, okay, well, I can see if I hunch my shoulders forward, then my, then this little figure is kind of bowed in this big, wide frame, you know. So he's telling the story of alienation. You know, you don't have to talk about anything. You just do it. It's great. When I was saying before how I think, you know, I know what, what it is people hire you for, what they expect from you, I think the the ingredient in the meal that you are is a tremendous amount of emotional truth. Huh. You have a kind of emotional resonance, but you turn on and off. Yeah. You know, like I always, I want to talk to you about P.T. Anderson for a minute. Like when you do Boogie Nights and that character you played, you played someone who was so cut off. To me, that, then that's what I perceived. From her reality. What yeah. I perceived yeah. was, was, did you make a choice with this woman, yeah. that famous scene you have with him, where he's going to have sex with you, and you tell him, you can do this to me, and, you you can, and you're very mad, yeah, do this, do this, yeah. do this, you can do this to me, go ahead, go ahead. And you're kind of holding, it's like his first day at school. Well, she's in complete denial about what's going on. She's someone who's made an economic choice. You know, really, she's given up her family, she's given up her child. She probably was in a position where this was the only kind of work she could get. She's a drug addict. Did you meet any of those people? Yeah, yeah. You did? 
good. She's a drug addict. My favorite scene in the movie is when she goes to court to get custody of her son. We're talking about Boogie Nights, yeah, by the way, for people who are listening. And she's all dressed up, and she's trying to be kind of a straight arrow and stuff, and she feels very self-righteous about getting her child back. And the judge looks at her and says, Maggie, have you ever been arrested? And that's the end. And you go, oh, my God. This, you know, she's, she's, of course she's been arrested, you know, and she just sobs and sobs and sobs. And you go, so this is a woman who in her head thinks that she can be a parent, but she's, she can't. Yeah. She's not living a life that's going to allow herself yeah. to parent a child, but she won't, there's a huge space between what she feels about herself and what the actual, what was actually happening. That's the first time you worked with Anderson? Yeah, yeah. And what had you been doing before that? What did he see you in? What did he, he cast you off safe. of? I don't know. I think he saw me in Bob. I think he saw me shortcuts and safe and Vanya and all that stuff. You know, Paul was very young. He was 26 when we met. We met at a party and a friend of mine introduced me to him and said, this guy wrote this script and he wants you to do it. And I was like, I would love to read it. And he said, you're going to be in my movie, man. I got the script and I read it and I was like, holy cow. Yes, I am. This is fantastic. He has such an original voice. It was so exciting. It was such... An amazing story and so emotional and wonderful and rich. And yeah, I was lucky to get it. You know what you were saying? I was thinking about how when you talk about emotion, you know, on camera and stuff, you have that too. You have this, you have this tremendous vitality, like a real sense of being alive and a lot, a lot contained inside you. And it's wonderful to work with you because it just permeates the scene. Like, you know, you feel that. That's the trick. The trick is how do you live on camera? How do you become alive on camera? So there's all this stuff about acting. You know, you can kind of create and a set character your pride and do all this aside. kind of stuff. You yeah. know, set you, your pride aside. You don't have to you, worry about how you look. Yeah, you but think, be alive. Yeah. Be alive. You did that great thing when we had that scene in Still Alice. You know, we had to say remember Santorini, which it's always really hard to start a scene with that kind of a thing and and you said and then you made you started laughing so hard and then I started laughing and then suddenly it's a scene about two people laughing because it, I was trying to genuine. remember Santorini but you know it's it's like that's what you want you know that's why I like to talk when I work what do people expect from you or think of you when they meet you? I think they think that I'm going to be more serious than I am. I guess because of all the dramas and the crying and stuff, right. they think that I'm going to be really dramatic and sad. Because of the emotion of the films yeah, you do. But I'm not, as you know, I'm not a very serious person. Right. And I'm not, a very, I'm not a terribly sad person. Well, you are you when know? you need to be. Sure. But you say Yeah, it. I can be serious. But, you but have I to mean, live I'm, there all the I time. Like to, I'm, I'm very chatty. I like mm-hmm. to talk all the way up to action. I do. I do. And if you can't talk to me, I'm really disappointed. Then I get lonely. I don't want to be lonely when I'm working. Yeah. I want to be with my buddy. Talk to me. I want to talk to me. Talk Let's to me. Buddies. My friend. Let's be buddies. Talk to me. What'd you do this morning? What'd you have for dinner last night? What are you doing later today? Are you cold? Do you like that sweater? <laughs> do you like my sweater? What are you doing? Action. Acting. I love it. That's my oh, favorite God, part. Oh, <laughs> then you get this great connection with another human being, and then the scene is like, poof, comes alive. But you why know? do you think that that emotion is so available to you? Why? It's inside. It's inside everybody everyone. So it's like, how do you access that? You know, your own story, everybody else's story. You know, what you're getting on top is just like the tiniest little, like, shell. Other than that, there's all this stuff. But then, but then, like I said, it's easier for me to get into it when I'm, when I'm, you know, talking to you about, you know, how much I like your sweater and, you know, where you live and are you going to rent or are you going to buy or, I, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, how are your kids? Did, you know, how was seventh grade for so-and-so? I mean, I, 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 I love all that stuff. I remember when I was younger, I think it was even unconscious as I would see people 
acting films. Mm-hmm. And the predominant examples would be like Brando or Pacino or something like that, where uh, them breaking down wasn't a big deal. These were like notes you played in music. Mm-hmm. Like that's just what people do. I didn't think about it like like it was separate because I went to Strasbourg where they really right. they put you in the frying pan and yeah. they really made you get to that. Yeah. And I went to acting school for a year where we basically cried for like a they year. Made you, they, well, they try to get you used to being able to... To tap into it. But that. the funny thing is, is that that's just a technique to get you to tap into it because people right. don't really behave that way. But you have to find it. Once again, it's all, all about what's true, what's real. It's like guns in, in movies and guns going off and people hitting people. Sometimes, especially early on in my career, people would be like, and then someone gets slapped. And I thought, wait, people don't slap each other. And if somebody does, it's shocking. So remember that when when there's a physical altercation, you're shocked by it. When people cry, it's upsetting. You're not trying to cry. You're trying not to cry because you don't want to be embarrassed. You know, so it's like so all that acting school stuff is about learning how to locate all those feelings. But then over time and with experience, you learn like the greats like Brando to modulate them. When you worked with P.T., mm-hmm. with Paul Thomas Anderson, Boogie Nights was the first film. Was he helpful to you as a director, or did it all basically take care of itself because it was so well-written? It well took written? care of itself. I have to say all he the, stands back and you the just great go. directors, all the greatest directors say very, very little. Magnolia was harder because it was so emotional, and I was really trying to plot it, you know, because I had to literally cry in every scene. And so I had to, I'm like, all right, Paul, Paul, this is this is like the smaller crying into the bigger crying, the biggest crying to the big, 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 you know. Yeah. So it's like I had to find a way to the not symphony. be. It wasn't like the, the level of hysteria had to change, you know, it had to be modulated. I couldn't be at 10. I had to be at 2 and, you know, get to 10 oh. and all that kind of stuff. There are times when I'll say to a director, uh, I want you to watch my vocal pattern. I want you to watch my level of hysteria. I want you to whatever. But basically, I want them to direct the, the movie. Do you know? I, I feel like I feel like there's a it's a misnomer that a director is an acting coach. The director is there to direct the audience's eye through a film. The actor is doing the acting. They shouldn't have to say, you know, I think When you had a tough time with a director, how was it tough without naming names? What was tough? When they talked to me too much. They did. Well, because I always say to everybody, please don't speak to me before I've done any acting. I said, because I'm just trying let's to hang on to this. Let's see what I come up this. with. Yeah, yeah, let's see what I come up with. And if I'm way off base, then please, by all means, come up and say, like, wow, that wasn't what I expected. But if I hear too much, I mean, this is going to sound really silly and precious, but I always say that acting, so it's like this little flame. And you've got this like little thing and you're thinking, okay, I want this to work, but you don't want to blow it out. If somebody comes along and says, this is what I think, they might just blow it out. (laughs) And then you have nowhere, you know, then you can't reach it anymore. Now, as emotional as you are and you have this uh, remarkable emotional resonance in your work, what do you like privately to the extent that you want to say you're a mother? Yes, you were married I, before. You I were was, married I was, once before, married I again. Married, I'm married now. I've been, You've to, had I've been your, with my husband for 18 years. We have two children. Two They're children. 16 and 12. Right. I have a fantastic, fantastic family. I have two dogs. They're black. One is small and one is big, a chihuahua and a lab. And uh, we live in New York City. I have a really nice life. I'm really, really lucky. You try to keep it simple? Oh, man, yeah, I really do. I try to keep it as How do you and he tag team work-wise? Because he makes films. He makes films and television, too. You know, we've been very fortunate. I mean, it's interesting because the the work-life balance thing is always an issue for everybody. When they're little, when they were babies, it was super, super easy because babies don't know where they are, and you can bring them everywhere. Just feed them, they're good. Yeah, and also we have an incredibly tolerant 
business toward women with children. I have to say, thank goodness for the movie business. I remember my son was, when I was doing Psycho, as a matter of fact, my son was nine months old and I was still getting used to having a baby and he was always with me and stuff. And he was hysterical in the trailer one day and I was nursing him and trying to get him to calm down. They knocked on the trailer door and they said, you know, we need you. And I was like... And this adorable PA said, no worries, man. Take your time. (laughs) And I was like, holy cow, I'm the luckiest woman in the world. You know, I mean, so so our business is very tolerant. We're lucky. And I I have no complaints as an actress. Did you turn down a lot of work because of your family? No, Some, you do. You do. I share, you turn things down because you can't travel. You yeah. know, you're like, once the kids are in school, I can't go. I can't I'm leaving go to, to do Australia. a film in a few days and I feel terrible. Right. <laughs> I do. I feel horrible. Yeah. It's tough. And it's tougher on women because when yeah. you have infants, you know, I mean, it's a, it, it's easier for you because you can go and come back. But it doesn't make it mean it's emotionally easy for you. But yeah, so I work. I try to work. If I have to travel, I do it in the summertime when everybody can come. I work in the city when they're in school and I, you know, try to, or I bunch things. If I have to travel, I bunch it together and, you know, and I have a partner who's an equal parent and, and we alternate stuff. Michael Fox and, said that yeah. to me once years ago. He said, they send mm-hmm. you a script and the script said, open on the skyline of Manhattan. He'd close the script and say, I'm in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. He said, I'm I in. Mean, I'm done. Just write me a check. You I'm have there. no idea. This tax break in New York City has been a godsend yeah, to me. We got to keep that going. It's amazing because I've been able to do so many movies at home. I mean, it really. And then, yeah, I'm like, shoot, it's in New York. All right, fine. It's great. Or at least a place that has an airport that's really accessible and you can, you know, go in and out for three days. Someone stuff. who but, is as well regarded and who's made as many great films as you've made. When you're one of those people that you look over the list of films you've made. It's kind of amazing, the list of movies that oh, you've done. Uh, when you think about co-stars of yours, men uh-huh. and women that you worked with, were there times you did films that you just thought to yourself, God, I'm so lucky that you were really excited. Do you get excited to yes. work with people? Like, Give me a couple of examples of people over the years that you worked with you were really happy. Alec Baldwin. No, no, no. No, come seriously. On. But but other than no, me, but I other, mean other than it. someone other who's than conducting you? a radio show. Okay. No, but it's true. It's true. No, you're very, I, I've always I wanted to work you. with you. I was very. I grateful. always wanted to work with you, and I had had such a great time. That's why know. I wanted Wash to stop talking, <laughs> so I could spend more time. The director no. would come up and give us notes, and I'd look. I give him this look like, can't you see that Julie and we're, I are hanging out and spending time together? Yeah. This better be important. <laughs> anyway, some other people. Who have I loved? Oh my gosh, Ray Fiennes. We had a great time together on End of the Affair. It was really, really special. Beautiful um, movie. Like a great, really great connection. James LeGrow. Do you know James LeGrow? He's a mm-hmm. friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I've worked with him on a couple of movies. Single man. Oh, yeah. Colin. Colin. Uh, he was amazing. You know, uh, I've worked with so many men. I mean, that's the I'd other love thing, to too. work with him. I never work with women. I mean, Laura Dern and I worked together. She played a small part in a movie that were, I had no women to talk to. So when you did to. the hours, you didn't have scenes with them. No. Right. We were all in separate movies. Right. So I remember I was like so, I got to be great friends with Laura. I was so excited that she was there and we had a, and she did this beautiful thing. It was a scene where I'm supposed to be with a bunch of women at a party and it's like the first time I've been out and I feel really independent and terrific and, and she's this lovely woman I've only corresponded with and we had this big scene all the women are chatting and talking and she looked over at me and this is off camera by the way too so you can you know you wouldn't can see this it was just personal and she grabbed my hand squeezed it and like winked gave me this little wink and I almost burst into tears because that's what the scene was like that's what it was like for my character like to be seen by this other woman to have this connection this friendship and Laura just did it and I was like oh I love you so much 
it really is remarkable when you have that kind of experience with with an actor, that sort of connection. I, I love it. Can you name one role you played that it was really hard, it was really a challenge, and when it was over and you saw the film, you thought, you know, that's a pretty good movie? The Hours. You did. The hours was really, really hard. It was a really hard shoot. My son was three, and we worked really long hours, and I would get home, and he'd be waiting up. for was in London, and he was waiting up for me. He wouldn't go to sleep until I got home, you know, because he slept in my bed for a long, long time until he was four and a half. Um, he'd be mortified to hear that on the radio. But... Um, it was. We were it all is really, on the radio. You know. <laughs> you know. I know. Hopefully, you want to cut that. He won't listen. Okay. <laughs> he won't listen. But <laughs> he. Um, so I was very worried about getting home. I was in scenes with another little boy who who was not easy to deal with because he was only six and he was kind of all over the place. We kept changing shots. It was very hard. I just couldn't feel like I was getting anything right. And I think each you know, all these separate segments. And then I saw the movie together. And I was like, Holy cow! This movie is beautiful. I mean, you just don't know. You really don't know. You don't, you know. don't know ever. You don't know. Yeah. Now, you did a film recently, and you were, you could explain the whole travel slip up here where you weren't able to accept this award, but you won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival. I did. And you were there. I did. I but was you had there. To leave. Well, I was there for an entire week. So I'd gotten there to do work for L'Oreal, who I work with. And then I had Hunger Games Press because they were doing something. And then I had a film and competition called Maps of the Stars, a David Cronenberg movie. Was Cronenberg the same as the other ones where he didn't say very much? No, he doesn't say anything. Oh my God. Very, very little. Oh um, so at that point, I'd been there for seven days. I was really exhausted. And we got home, and it was Thursday before Memorial Day weekend. And Friday, we picked our kids up from school. We came out to Montauk, where I have a house. And Saturday morning is when the awards happen in Cannes. And I wasn't expecting anything. And I figured if they were going to tell me something, that they would let me know. And I just got a phone call while I was folding towels at the pool after sweeping out my shed and stuff like that. It's Memorial Day weekend saying, you just, I just accepted Best Actress for You at Cannes from Bruce Wagner, the screenwriter. I was stunned. What kind of movie is it? It's a Cronenberg film. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a movie about all these people in Hollywood. It's, a, it's about families, I think, actually. I mean, a lot of people think that it's about Hollywood, but I really think it's about families and about people's desire to connect and be seen. And instead of being seen intimately by a family member, they want to be validated by the outside world and how destructive that is and how cruel it can be. It's really rough. And David did this. This is what was cool about seeing how a director communicates to you because it was my first day of shooting and he was setting up these shots. And he, he brought me in on a, a kind of a long angle and I sat down at a table and he shot Mia Washakowska, and he shot me, and then I realized that he didn't do a two-shot, and that we didn't ever come into each other's frame. We never crossed frames. At one point, I came around, I entered her frame, but I never pushed into her frame. There was never any physical. So everyone in the film is isolated, and I was like, oh, I get it. So, you know, he kept everybody purposely isolated, and it's really devastating to see something shot that way with that kind of remove, and that and you think all these people want to do is be in a frame with one another. You know, that's all we do. We're usually right on top of each other as people. And David kept everybody very separate, so it's sort of heartbreaking. It's a very erotic film. No, no. You wish. It's, it's not? not? It's it's not erotic. No. Why'd you say that? Are you telling the truth? Mm -hmm. Why did people tell me the Cronenberg's movie? You're completely, you have a three-way, you and two other people. It's Do you a, have like a crazy three-way? It is, but it's comical. Oh, it's a comical three-way. It's three a comical three-way. Three you know those. <laughs> 
Oh, the, oh, a comical <laughs> three-way. Oh, okay. Well, that's a horse oh, of a I different thought, color. Yeah. yeah. It's not very sexy, I have to say. And the funny, it's not. The funniest thing about the three-way is that she's in bed. It's this terrible. This poor, desperate woman is in bed with uh, another man, another woman. And the man gets up to answer the phone and gets on the phone with the director that's working with. And my character desperately wants a part in the, in this movie. So as she's sort of with this other woman, she's just trying to hear him on the phone. And he hangs up. And the first thing she says is, mention me when you talk. <laughs> Tell me about Cronenberg. Oh, I love him so much. He's a guy that you would expect to be really nutty, you know, because from all his films. He's so smart. He's interested in absolutely everything. He he can speak eloquently on any subject. He loves people, devoted to his family, has worked with the same crew, the same DP for the last 30 years or so, you know, lives in Toronto, works in Toronto, and makes movies about kind of extreme human behavior. But it's all within the realm of possibility. Look at a movie like Existence, sure. also, which was so prescient with that kind of crazy, with that gaming going inside your head for the virtual reality. Jennifer and Jason Leigh. Jennifer Jason, the brilliant Jennifer Jason Leigh. Sure. And with the portal, you know, that, that yeah, weird very disturbing portal that film. they had. Crash. But yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he really pushes what the possibilities of the imagination are and, and, and our own, you know, physical possibilities. And he's driven, I think, by his own intellect and curiosity. He's a wonderful man. I what are your kids? Him. What are your kids like? My kids are great. My son is 16. He's very tall. He's going to get even taller. He loves basketball. He loves music. He's an accomplished musician. He's like his dad. He's like his dad and, and a surfer and snowboarder. and Physical. Uh, yeah, physical, but also very sensitive, emotional boy and hardworking. He works very hard. My daughter's just 12. She's tall and slender. She loves to ride horses. She loves fashion. She makes clothes. She has yeah. a sewing machine. She loves you, Alec. She's always like, hi, Alec. Hi. She's like, hi. Hi. Hi, hi. Oh, is that Alex? Whenever I see her, I'm like, God, you look so fabulous, so gorgeous. She's like, thanks, thanks. She loves that. Thanks. She's gorgeous. And she's like, I know. Well, thank you for saying so. Funny. Oh, my goodness. She is funny. She's adorable. She's a great spirit. She did this imitation. We were watching the VMAs, and she was playing it for me. And they did a, they cut to the Kardashians and the audience watching. And then she's like, Mom, Mom, this is what they look like. And then she, this, this, and it was, it was hysterical. I was like, You're right. That was really funny. So, I don't know. So she's already, but I don't know. Right now she says she wants to be a fashion designer. So we'll see. Who knows? You work a lot. Mm-hmm. And when you're not working, and if you have a, especially if you have a decent spell of time yeah. off, what do you like to do with yourself? I spend a lot of time with my kids, taking them to school, bringing them back mom. from school. Yeah, doing all the mom stuff. I'm very interested in my house. I like to decorate my house. Yeah. Go to my yoga place a lot. I love that. I've been intermediate in yoga for 10, for 10 years, I like to say. Yeah. <laughs> Better than I am. Ten years. I'm married to a yoga instructor. I'm still. She's good. In triple A ball here. She is really good. And then sometimes, like this last summer, last winter, I guess we. I had a friend who could teach watercolor, so all my friends from from yoga got together and we took watercolor lessons, and then uh, we learned how to kind of like do decoupage. I know that sounds crazy, but it was sort of a fun thing to do. And you read. And I love to read. And you read scripts. Yeah, I read lots And you think about what you want to do next. Yeah. And when you're not acting, are you mindful of that? You're grateful for the time and you're glad to have time off and be with your family? Or do you like sitting there going, I want to get back to work? I want to get back to become a habit. It's a kind of thing. I know I am a workaholic in the sense that I really like to be work. I like, I love to be at work. Like, I love the crew. I love the cast, the other actors. I like the idea of going to work. I like being acting. What about doing a play? Like, no, I'm scared of that. I ran into Matthew Broderick the other day. 
and I said, aren't you scared of the people? <laughs> yeah. And he said, no, I, I mean, I like it. It really helps when it's a comedy. And I was thinking about him and Nathan Lane. And, you know, you know when you watch Nathan Lane and he gets a laugh and then he stretches and it's like he makes the laugh bigger. And I think Nathan has a sense, almost like if you were tickling a kid, like you know how to tickle a kid a little bit and they laugh. Well, the audience is there to be tickled again. by Nathan. Yeah. And Nathan like does it, like he tickles yeah. the audience. He t- and I don't feel like I have any sense of that. I think I have too much fear of a, of a live audience. I like to pretend that no one's there, which is why I like movies. I like to pretend there's no one there. <laughs> like I'm in the book. Julianne Moore continues to step into the unknown. She's currently working on Freeheld with Ellen Page, Steve Carell, and Michael Shannon. It's based on the Oscar-winning 2007 documentary about two women whose life story led to changes in the domestic partnership laws in New Jersey. You're listening to Here's the Thing. This is Alec Baldwin. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 